0: Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Pugh, reporter at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this episode is Jay Swanson. He's Moneybox's Chief Platform Officer. We'll be talking investing, ESG, savings, user behaviors, interest rates, and new technologies, and how all these things come together in the booming money management space. Welcome to the show, Jay. Would you like to introduce yourself, talk about your role at Moneybox and the sort of work that you're doing there?
1: Sure. Hi. So as you say, I'm Chief Platform Officer. And what that basically means is that here at Moneybox, I get to run uh, all of the tech. We've built all of our own tech here. So we have... Uh, in-house tech teams that have built our platforms, and then obviously off the back of those platforms, we need to run the investment processes, the customer accounts, etc., and all of the uh, regulated processes that spawn off managing all of those records for all of our customers. So that's kind of my role, and I guess over the years, I've been doing things in operations and strategy and other areas, and have been working here now for about four and a bit years.
0: Thanks, Jay. So first up in the podcast is our news and numbers segment. These are our news stories that we found that are interesting for us to discuss. So Jay, you've chosen a story. I think both of our choices are kind of, they reflect a wider trend at the moment with the economic conditions that are seemingly on the horizon two sides of the same coin perhaps your story is um money management apps boom as cost of living crisis worsens so do you want to explain to myself and our, our listeners why you picked that up that story in particular
1: I think it's fascinating, isn't it? As we see consumer behaviour coming out of the COVID environment, where um, people were denied the ability to spend their money, and therefore were saving to a degree there. And now, of course, uh, although they may have their money to spend, the cost of living pressures are are sort of certainly having an impact on people. But I think what is really interesting for us is that we're seeing where we have managed to build relationships with customers and help them to understand the benefits, particularly of regular routine investing and saving, that actually accelerates them towards the sort of goals they're able to achieve through financial outcomes in a way that trying to encourage people to make oddball spontaneous decisions just doesn't. So it's very much about building that relationship And the educational component that comes with that to then set the savings habits that is what we're seeing, you know, some are able to differentiate us in that regard. and Obviously, we're believing that we have differentiated in that regard and we're seeing the benefit of that.
0: Yeah, so in a way, the pandemic and the associated lockdowns was a very good opportunity. And it's not just within this sort of particular money management sector, but has been a good opportunity for a lot of fintechs to establish themselves with users. As you said, there were certain sort of forces at work with government stimulus and people being at home and things like that. And those behaviors, you anticipate that they will last longer than the associated
1: lockdowns. Yeah, and I think the other thing that comes with that, of course, is if we all think about are working life on a sort of nine to five, as it were, office day, then you've got a lot of interactions with colleagues and a lot of opportunities for opinion seeking and discussing things. As people moved to, and still are in more remote situations, and the, the nature of trust starts to change quite significantly. So if a brand through the channels that it reaches out to you can actually create a degree of trust and empathy with the end user, then that will be rewarded because you build that relationship. And again, this is the sort of enduring nature of it. I think we have to make sure that we are both giving information, support, and of course, a high quality of investment service that runs alongside that. But those two first pieces, the sort of information and support, are almost uh, the sort of primary pillars that people have to feel confident about the actions they're taking. We all know that it's very easy to be fooled into taking an action and feeling that actually you maybe shouldn't have taken or whatever. So people are seeking a degree of reliance, confidence, etc., that come from building those relationships. And that's something that we've been working very hard to make sure that we have earned that trust and therefore people can place that confidence in us.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned, um, obviously, with lockdowns and working remotely, we are a gregarious species in uh, marketing speak, word of mouth, and those close contacts, those are the strongest endorsements you can get. And in that gap where we had less of interpersonal interactions, yeah, there's an opportunity there for fintechs to, as you say, with trust and education to establish a relationship. And that could endure even after those external conditions change. And there's
1: a sort of reliance that people have on persistence of information. So it's very interesting when we look at even customers that are perhaps in, say, just a cash LISA. So it's not going to change dramatically over the course of a week because the interest rates are relatively predictable in that respect. But nonetheless, people are still accessing their app to verify and validate the balances that they have and what's going on several times a week which is fascinating to see, isn't it? That um, if you sent them a bank statement once a month, it would still probably not even got looked at once a yeah. month. Well, I, knows, I, know, I
0: know for myself that's certainly the case because it's, it's a static uh, metric, isn't it?
1: A bank in, in, indeed. So creating that relationship through the combination of an app and then the supporting infrastructure, the chat infrastructure, the phone infrastructure, etc., that sits behind that becomes a very important part of building that confidence and the engagement.
0: Yeah. And and do you think, you know, talking about the new normal and cost of living crisis, which, of course, is obviously after the pandemic, perhaps naively, many people just assumed that we would not necessarily go back to normal, but a new normal. But what we're seeing now is supply chain snarled and economic shocks, which are essentially post-pandemic shocks with cost and the cost of living cost of energy cost of fuel which underpins everything i'm thinking of you know with streaming services people are cutting those in order to save money yet with money management apps i guess depending on how much the if there are any fees or subscription things like that do you see them enduring in that sort of cost cutting um, penny pinching era that we're entering now so it's interesting again.
1: If we sort of step back a moment and kind of go, well, why are people even using the money box app? Well, they're using the money box app because they know there are certain things in their lives that they want to achieve, and those things are financially enabled at the very least. So let's take buying a house. I only have a binary choice really. I either continue to pay rent or I buy a house. Um, we are a nation of house owners. And unsurprisingly, that's the direction that a number of people look to go. And that's made us a leader in the LISA market. And we've now seen more than 30,000 of our customers actually buying houses for the first time. So that's just tremendously exciting for us to see. And those are things that just are going to happen, cost of living crisis or not. People are going to prioritize those as opportunities. And if we can, again, it's back to the trust, and confidence point that I was making earlier. If we've successfully helped somebody accelerate their ability to buy a house, then actually that makes us worthy of their trust. We've helped to deliver that outcome that they initially perhaps only dreamed of. So what we do see is we see people engaging particularly on the regular savings front of things. What we have seen And we do see this with market downturns just as much as cost of living, actually. We see that the spontaneous one-off type deposits tend to fall away. And And that's entirely human, really, isn't it? I've managed to understand that actually I need to progressively save towards a goal, so I will commit to that. But the nature of the environment, that market volatility combined perhaps with Cost of living means that I am not spontaneously going to get off my safer on a Sunday afternoon and chuck 50 quid into my eye. So that's not going to be front of mind for me, but I will continue my uh, savings process. So it's very interesting to see that people are cutting back maybe on subscriptions to what they perceive as non-essential things. But actually, they're still understanding that saving for those financial goals is pretty much essential. Yeah,
0: and obviously, like you say, those spontaneous one off deposits tend to be larger. But if you have a mechanic that allows people to save little and often, it feels less painful. And it's also probably in the whole cumulatively, you know, you probably will end up saving more money.
1: And of course, you know, those of us who, who have sort of studied investing uh, to a degree, and we do try and share a reasonable amount of this on the app, although obviously many will be new investors, so the extent to which they want to dive in to understanding more is for them to decide. But obviously, there is a mathematical process whereby if you save regularly, even in a volatile market, you're effectively smoothing the line, um, the so-called pound cost averaging. And in so doing, you reduce the impact of volatility. Whereas if you're just trying to pick a time to put a single amount of money in, your chances of winning or losing are pretty much equal. So you're much better off with a regular saving. And that's the message really that we've tried to convey and again if you convey that message successfully and people understand it in the appropriate way and then see the benefits of that action again you build the confidence and trust don't you
0: yeah um so before moving to the second part so we're talking about market volatility and, and, and that kind of thing. The story that I, we'll just talk about this briefly. The story that I shared um, Canadian wealth tech, Wealth Simple, sheds 12.6% of workforce due to market volatility. I mean, obviously, this is, like I said, it's the other side of the coin in a sense. Um, do you see in fintech more broadly and in your particular sort of sector that, you know, after that boom of the lockdowns, the pandemic, that companies are starting to, well, fire people essentially yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, to save money? Um, is that something you're seeing, you know, among your peers,
1: if you like? So I think clearly there was a a significant wall of money from investors that was looking to try and find fintechs that were going to deliver suitable returns for investors in the fintech as a corporate entity rather than investors as customers that's definitely backed off and that has certainly meant that as an industry the industry now needs to look to making sure that profitability and growth are both equal goals. I think previously there was probably a point at which growth was almost a thing in and of itself and profitability was something that one day might follow. I think now those two things need to be cooperatively managed. We're in a very strong position. Uh, We believe we've also had a very successful fundraising uh, with a very big crowd fund as well that was hugely successful. It's lovely to see our customers putting faith in us as investors as well. So we've got. 50 million or so of cash sitting on the balance sheet and we're pretty clear on our route to profitability that's well planned out now so we're not having to jerk the rudder as it were to turn in a different direction um are there those that will have to make some of those tougher decisions yes I've got, I've, i think that's Definitely the case, and we are seeing it. It's an interesting one as, as to what it's doing. Also, then to some of the talent that we use within our organisation. Of course, many of our customers will also be uh, employees of some of those uh, of some of those companies. And what we are seeing is that the cream is still rising to the top. The jobs are out there. Uh, people are still recruiting, but they're not recruiting simply for to fill a post. They are recruiting for a, a much more uh, refined and clear set of skills that they actually need from somebody. So those people who have the right set of skills will continue to be uh, highly employable. And, you know, hopefully those organizations that have a reasonably strong balance sheet and a clear plan to profitability will successfully deliver the outcomes that we want to do over the years for our customers. So I think we're in a good place for that. But will it be a moment of reckoning for some? Uh, Yes, of course, I think it will be. And you're seeing that in some of the news stories.
0: So this is our interview start section. So focusing the discussion into a specific industry topic or sector. So let's start off with some some good news. Uh, Money books has enjoyed pretty good steady growth in recent years, 850,000 customers, sorry. And um, the competitive landscape, though, is becoming increasingly competitive. We touched on this a little bit before, but if you go into some detail about how is Moneybox differentiated in such a competitive market, and how do you see the market changing in the coming months and years as we all grapple with these global forces of inflation?
1: Sure. One of the first things to say really is that this is a new-ish market, isn't it? So we do see competition as being a good thing in that it both helps people to sort of understand how app-based solutions can be relevant to the way uh, people want to run their lives in this regard. People like myself have seen the evolution of literally door-to-door selling and even door-to-door money collection, which which was still happening when I started working with an insurance company Around about the year 2000, we still had 300,000 customers who were paying monthly premiums that were collected in cash uh, on the door. Um, different era. So it is a different era, isn't it? But those yes. are still. Uh, you know, we're 20 years on, but those people still have financially enabled needs um, now. So the brilliant thing is if we can work as an industry to deliver great solutions to those customers, then actually that transition to a more efficient and effective way of servicing will be enabled. And that's a a very cool thing for all parties. So I guess competition is good in that regard, in that it it tries to, well, then from our point of view, we want to compete by being seen, as I was saying earlier, is highly trusted to enable that confidence in us and in what we're offering from our customers. Uh, And it's in doing that, then, we need to both interact with the customers in a sympathetic and empathetic way, but we also need to provide the component parts of the right solutions for them. So a customer that, for example, wants to buy a house, needs to have license because that's the best way of acquiring the uh, government bonuses if that's suitable for the customer. They may need to have uh, places to put other money that they're also saving for the deposit. They may need help with the mortgage process and acquiring a suitable mortgage. All of those are things that we bring to bear through the single app to give the customer a solution to the house buying needs. So we see them as not so much taking out a LISA with us as embarking on the house buying journey. And if that if we become partner in that journey, then that's hugely successful uh, both for the customer in creating a simple and effective outcome, but also obviously for us in creating the opportunity to have multiple product relations. If we can build that trust then in that huge, you know, life empowering moment where you buy your first house then logically that customer way well feel that they should place their trust in us to consolidate uh, their existing and future pensions with us to start to save for other things that they want to do. So so having that multiplicity of component to bring together into a solution and making it relevant, uh, accessible and, and you know, interesting and engaging for the customer is kind of how you're going to compete. That's the nature of what will drive success.
0: Yeah create that customer loyalty on their journey towards sort of financial control over, over their finances. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people feel at the mercy of their finances. They don't necessarily feel in control of their own money and their going, comings and goings. So yeah, if you can create that peace of mind to a certain extent, it's quite powerful. You mentioned um, home buying and, and pensions, retirement. So in recent years, you've expanded the offering from Moneybox from just saving and investing to include home buying and retirement. Where do you see the greatest opportunity in the future?
1: So I think there are probably sort of two dimensions you can look at in in that respect. One of which is nature of the underlying assets as it were, that you can access. So I think clearly, we're working at the moment on giving people the opportunity to invest in individual stocks where they feel those stocks are, are ones that they feel a particular, you know, investment empathy towards, and of course that could come about through a number of reasons, through attraction to brand or attraction to business model or whatever. We also have to understand that crypto assets are are a valid investment class and we have to consider how and if we accommodate those in our offering. But we've got to balance that with the desire to make sure that customers have a simple, easy, way of being able to manage towards their financial goals through investing. And if we overcomplicate that, then that rather loses the confidence and trust point that I was making earlier. So it's a balancing act in that respect. But of course, we do want to give customers choice where that's appropriate. Then I think of the actual sort of way in which we present the component products, if you like, the ISA, the pension, etc. I think there's an opportunity and a number of fintechs are working in this area are uh, to try and create more sort of goal orientated behaviours. Well, in part, I suppose gamification is a means whereby you might interest and engage customers with that. But I guess my primary thing is to try and help customers think about what their goals actually are in the first instance and I don't think that has to be overly complex and I don't think actually it has to be the case in all circumstances it may simply be that I've got some money and I just want to see it working harder that's a perfectly reasonable goal I don't think the goal has to be some kind of very precise let me fill in lots of uh, questions to discover that in 2030, I want to have this. That may be a bit too abstract. But I think we need to service customers in that regard and give them a sense of how the constituent choices that they have of combining pensions and lices and invest and ISAs and savings accounts, how those various things can come together to enable a plan and a set of actions towards a particular outcome. That's something that Uh, you know, fintech should be able to do pretty well. Obviously, you have to have the component parts in the first place. There's no point in telling somebody about the plan if you haven't got the uh, constituent parts. But I think that's probably an area where we're looking to build out further. If you've got that confidence and trust uh, from the customer, then I think you can build that sort of guidance component and goal-orientated component following that.
0: Yeah, that actually segues very nicely into the next question. Um, Investing is very much of future-focused behavior, investing and saving. And humans are notoriously bad at that kind of thing. How you talked a little bit about goals and, you know, actionable goals, mechanics and things. How does Moneybox counter our woeful inability to think ahead, to plan for the future? <laughs> um, i said humans down a bit but <laughs> <laughs> no no no
1: i think we all recognize our foibles don't we yeah. um i think the regular uh, investing model is a huge asset it is not without its difficulties we run a direct debit model and it's a weekly direct debit model and, and that has the corollary that for a customer that decides they're going to take some positive action on a Sunday, actually, it takes quite a period of time before the Banks have processed the direct debits and then we can draw the direct debit and then we can invest it, etc. So, there is quite a, even in the sort of sense of that, there is quite a long period of time before the customer receives any kind of positive affirmation from the action that they took. So, you're quite right, this uh, in in investing is obviously a, a long term thing, but even the sign up can be quite a long term thing. So, we've worked hard with things like open banking now to allow people to be able to make payments immediately on on opening the account, that can be nothing but a very good thing, you know, a sense of, right, okay, let's get you onto a regular Uh, investing process. But actually, if you wanted to make a decision now, and you feel emotionally that you want to see the outcome of that action, then, you know, let's work together to do that. And that actually has received very good uptake and very high conversion, as you kind of expect, because again, it's the human condition. Um, I think there is a thing in there, Alex, where The financial industry has always had a tendency to report in absolute terms either your money or your percentage growth or comparison against a market or something, all of which is kind of okay, and it's kind of right, of course. But it slightly misses the point that actually what I really, really wanted to do here was to make sure that I had enough money for outcome X or Y. So if I can convert outcome X or Y into some kind of pounds amount or some kind of achievable point, then actually my reporting probably needs to be more empathetic in the sense of actually talking to me about my progress towards that goal rather than, hey, you're 2% up today, you're 5% up today or whatever. Because those things are relatively cold and relatively uninformative. Whereas if I knew that Only half joking. If I knew that on a day when uh, the rail strikes are on and everything else, um, I've ploughed my way into work and a message comes up that says, you know what, as a result of the positive things that have happened in the markets, it looks like based on your goals, you could have a day less to work in your life. You kind of go, you know what, this has been a better day than it was earlier. So I think there are some things that we could make quite visceral in that regard more human more fun and this is again you know comes right back to the sort of confidence and trust thing doesn't it if i if i were talking to a friend down the pub i would be talking about my proximity to achieving those outcomes rather than the monetary number yeah And
0: they would be talking, yeah, sort of the interpersonal aspects rather than sort of the macroeconomic stuff that some other sort of financial institutions might be obsessed with.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I mean, of course, that's... It's contextual. And if markets are bouncing around, it's entirely right that people want to understand that. And they want to understand what are the implications of those things. And of course, when the Ukrainian crisis broke out and the sanctions were being placed on Russian investments, it was entirely right that people want to oh, know, well, hang on, is my investment in this sort of global fund in any way affected by the sanctioning of Russian stocks? Um, and we were able to provide positive information for customers so that they can understand that so I think it's absolutely right that that macro uh, information is well shared and well digested but fundamentally the thing that's carrying me home at night is that sense of progress in my financial outcomes and therefore I think we should be all thinking towards that
0: yeah we talked a little bit about open banking are there any other sort of fintech developments on the horizon that you think will impact your sector and how is money bucks? managing or capitalizing on these you know so you've got your obvious ones blockchain and crypto etc but open banking account to account payments things like that do you want to talk on some
1: of these technologies sure absolutely so we've been a leader in open banking for some while we were one of the first to set up the ability through our roundups we connected with uh, a range of banks using the open banking infrastructure um, so we we're one of the early adopters of that and we've now moved into using open banking as i was saying for faster. Payments being made into the various money box products. So that's a really good thing. And clearly, as we look further forward, there's some open banking improvements sitting out there, such as variable recurring payments, which may well be appropriate for a number of our customers. And we'll be looking at those. They're still in their very early stages. So we need to understand both the commercial uh, dynamics of that as well as the effectiveness. It takes a while for even uh, mandated standards, such as those that the CMA put out there. Uh, through the OBIE. Those mandated standards still take a while to actually properly come into operation and you end up with a lot of edge cases. So there's a lot of support you have to provide to customers. There's nothing more nervous is there, than you press a button that says, I'm sending 200 pounds to X and you get one of those nice spinning wheels that just sits there spinning and you go, oh my God, have I spent, sent the 200? Do I need to do it again? What do I need? So we have to manage those edge cases. And so technology and those innovations have to be properly wrapped around with support models and understanding. They're not something that you can sort of blindly go into. That said, you know, we are very excited about what the government is trying to do in respect of open finance. I think that's hugely encouraging. The idea that um, utilities and others should need to be more open in their data interaction and therefore in the ability for customers to be able to express choice and have that choice enacted in relatively short order seems entirely right in the 2020s, doesn't it? And then in sort of other areas, I think we probably will not uh, directly see any immediate benefit of blockchain. But I think for those that are followers of that, particular sort of aspect. I think there are some aspects of that sort of distributed ledger that could well come about to be very useful for various investment classes. Obviously, for share registers, that should logically be something we've always known um, that where you are trying to move uh, assets from one account to another account, and this is particularly true of funds, probably slightly lesser of equities. That's always been quite problematic. And there are a number of sort of industry utilities that do try to support that. But logically, blockchain should be able to support that. So we may be an indirect beneficiary of some of those innovations that really have yet to come about. We spend a lot of time Because we have both an iOS app and an Android app, we obviously spend a lot of time working with Google and uh, and, and Apple as to what they're doing. And we try and make sure that uh, wherever they're releasing new features and new capabilities that we think would be right for our customers, we're trying to bring those in relatively quickly as well. So that's another area where we sort of keep trying to innovate.
0: Yeah. Um, there's a difference between, we mentioned VRPs, difference between the technology being mandated from the top or before it sort of cascades and ripples down, becomes kind of a user everyday behavior. And there's sometimes a little bit of, it can be a little choppy to get people kind of acquainted with it and trusting it, I suppose.
1: Yes. Um, as I say, that trust gets very easily eroded if, say, it only works nine times out of 10 and the tenth time, it fails in a way that is uncertain. So it's only of uh, that once, f- isn't it? Yeah, but if we can anticipate that failure, and we can give the customer a clear, uh, convincing, and verifiable set of messages that explain exactly what has gone on what action they now need to take. You know, we've all moved on. If we think about the last 15 years from the day when you really didn't know whether to press a button again on the website because it was just hanging. And now actually people have uh, put much more effort into handling those edge cases and actually giving customers clear understanding of what they need. You know, do not press a browser back button as an example indeed. Uh, So I think it is important that we adopt those technologies at the point at which we've got those edge cases properly understood. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it does have to be um, solid. Yeah.
0: So ESG, um, talking about nascent technologies, now we move on to new categories of investing and it's just like blockchain, perhaps another buzzword, probably with better intentions perhaps, but um, yeah, ESG investment options how popular have they been and what is the future for esg investing in your view
1: well i think the good thing about esg i think is that by starting as a sort of almost cause-led piece it's now forced its way into the mainstream and to the mainstream now to the extent to which the big funds houses for instance are essentially running esg as a norm and that's just great because Again, if we go back probably 25 years, the worm some companies, NPI, were one that had a socially responsible investment suite of funds that they put into their pensions, and they were reasonably well taken up. But now it's become a much more mainstream thing. So I guess the question that partly now sits out there is, is should I simply expect that my mainstream investment would be SG? Because why on earth would you not want to be investing in firms with appropriate governance? What is the chance that a firm with inappropriate governance? is going to continue to deliver successful and desirable returns. It's probably a sort of self-defeating outcome. So I think it's very interesting now with seeing the regulator starting to step in on this as well in terms of particularly the pension side of things. So we are seeing our customers asking us questions about that as they should do. We are probably seeing less take up of explicitly ESG than of just mainstream global investing funds, which is an interesting piece. Um, The options are there, but customers are not necessarily picking up on ESG per se, but I think rather more, they're looking to make sure that where the trackers are simply investing in global indices, that those global uh, companies are, are acting in a manner that is appropriate.
0: Uh, I was going to say it's very difficult to establish in a lot of cases. It's a tangled web of, of interconnectedness, and do customers. Do they query the validity and reliability of the metric?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, we use tracker funds, and the the advantage of the tracker funds is the methodology of any sort of um, ESG or SRI type uh, investing is reasonably well published. So that information can be quite easily shared. But I think in a more sort of macro sense, the really exciting thing for me is that if we are increasing from a regulatory point of view and from a public perception point of view, pushing for improved sustainability governance and environmental impact, then uh, that can only be a good thing. And it's forcing the companies themselves to actually adopt those policies in ever greater numbers. So I think that's a very exciting thing. and What I see is ESG as being a movement that is genuinely starting to change the world rather than perhaps the niche that it was 15 years ago or so. So I hope we will move away from any uh, parties being accused of greenwashing and then rather more actually to a place where that is just the norm. Why would you not?
0: yeah well, the general trend seems to be in the right directions, and that's, that's a good thing. Uh, might maybe me a case of a bit too late, but I don't think so. I think you've got to be optimistic I um, think about these kind of things. Low interest rates, that was the next question I had. Um, how big do you think the impact has been of of crazy low interest rates that we've had on investing more generally? and now they're look, it looks like they're starting to increase. Uh, For a while, savings accounts were, we talked a little about making your money work for you. Savings accounts for a long time, because of those historically low rates, were not a particularly wise way to, were wise place to put your money. But now they're starting to maybe regain some of their cachet at the expense of investments. How do you see that playing out over the sort of, you know, short to medium term?
1: Yeah. So our customer base is, a lot of them will be in that sort of 25, 40-year-old bracket. So depending on what goals uh, they're seeking, obviously different uh, investment strategies have different implications for the length of time. I think certainly as you look to People wanting to achieve more financial freedom towards the latter part of their working life, then obviously the kind of mantra of time's your friend, inflation's your enemy is probably right. And therefore, it would seem relatively counterintuitive, even at 1.5%, to be putting your cash into that knowing that inflation is running at 9%. The outcome is relatively certain of that. That said, uh you know markets until uh, the last few days anyway were about 20% down from their sort of um, peak at the back end of last year so nothing is certain But what we do see is where customers have shorter term uh, goals, such as wanting to save for a house, then actually there, a cash lice seems like a very sensible thing to do because you're not exposing yourself to the risks of the investment market if you're holding it for a relatively short term, but you are picking up the 25% bonus from the government. So that looks like a pretty sensible way of doing things. Um, As I say, we've not seen people back off making regular investments investment payments, we have seen people back off the one offs. And we have, as you quite rightly say, seen therefore a commensurate rise in people building up interest paying cash balances. I think what will be interesting then is to see whether people feel uh, sufficiently comfortable about the investment markets in the near future to draw down that cash and start to invest that cash again, particularly if they have longer-term goals, because even though we're paying some attractive cash rates, they're still a long way behind where inflation's going.
0: Part three, fintech jail. This is where we ask for an overhyped, overused buzzword or industry term or trend that our guest has seen or heard enough of and they want to get shot of it. So then we'll we'll talk about it, whether it deserves a place in the jail. As far as I know, I don't think this one's in the jail already. So it's a new, it's one that will be familiar to our listeners, but I think it's a new term. So uh, you've picked, Jay, no brainer. Do you want to explain why that one gets your goat and uh, why you think it should be in fintech jail?
1: For me, the joy of the industry that we work in is that it's forever changing, and that which you didn't think was applicable or would work yesterday turns out to work today. And that change is a tremendously exciting thing. It's an exciting thing for what we can deliver for our customers. So, it's an exciting thing for our employees and our colleagues. It's an exciting thing for our customers. So, for me demeaning nature of calling something a no-brainer is just crazy. Um, everything should be looked at, thought about, inspected and reconsidered because it, it could be applicable tomorrow when it wasn't applicable today. It might have been applicable yesterday, but no longer today. And uh, we have all of us sat in the meeting with somebody who's uh, probably paid considerable amounts of money who looks at a brush and goes, well, that's a no-brainer, which just means that they don't want any challenge. They don't want any discussion of, about it and actually probably there's some ideas and some valuable discussion that have gone missing. Uh, my team will probably say, but Jay, I'm sure you said that two weeks ago. And if so, <laughs> it, if so, I put it out there. No, I apologize. But I think, you know, one of the things that we really value here at Moneybox is constantly uh, examining things, reconsidering things, discussing things, and trying to move things forward with always a lens as to if our customers could hear us doing this, would they think this is right? Uh, is the outcome going to be right for the customer? We always feel like they're here with us in the room and as a customer, I'd want to know that people are really, really having a damned hard think about what the best things they could do for me are.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, the no-brainer, its it, it kind of... It doesn't create space for learning and for making mistakes and understanding and reaching out. It's in such a dynamic and evolving sector and just the world in general that we live in, like in the 21st century, you know, there's people that think they know everything and the discussion's over. It's a bad position to be in. You want to have a a space where people can challenge and question and learn. Um, I think in a lot of ways, most of us are coming from places of ignorance a lot of the time and yeah it's good to keep an open mind and keep the discussion going
1: and we've all had that moment haven't we in our life where somebody says something daft there's a bit of a laugh about it and then somebody goes you know what yeah it's true and that's so cool it's just brilliant that's what we should be you know it's back to your point about humans that's what humans are here for to explore things and have some fun
0: great um, right. Well, I think we're coming to the end of the episode. Uh, I just want to say thanks, Jay, for coming on. It's been a really good discussion, actually. Thank you. Before we sign off, do you have any socials or websites that you want to plug? Anything that you want to talk about from Moneybox briefly?
1: Um, well, obviously, we the Moneybox uh, app is out there for anybody to download. We'd be delighted. If you want to download it, there's lots of uh what we hope is interesting educational stuff in there for those people that want to understand a little bit more about uh, investing and about how we're doing this piece. So we'd be delighted if people want to do that and reach out to us, as I was saying in the sort of piece about the name Raina, Um we're always interested in hearing ideas. So hopefully that a that's a dangerous dangerous. <laughs> it is always a dangerous thing. But no, we're um we're here to do great things and have fun doing them. So if people can help us on that journey and join us on that journey. Many. That's very cool.
0: Fantastic. You can find me, listeners, on Twitter at pew Show, P U G H Show, and on LinkedIn by searching my name, Alex Pugh, journalist. As for FinTech Futures, you can find us online at fintechfutures.com. On Twitter, at fintech futures and on linkedin again by searching fintech futures that's enough fintech futures if you like this podcast and our other episodes please subscribe on apple podcast spotify soundcloud or your favorite podcasting service we'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend thank you very much for your support